I knew I was really unhappy. And I had thought about going to the Golden Gate Bridge myself and jumping. I really was at that place of saying, I don't know how to disengage from this identity I've created. I was giving a speech in St. Louis and after the speech, I was sitting and signing books and I went unconscious. I guess I was out for like four or five minutes and they called the paramedics, thankfully, and I was on the ground and next thing I knew I was coming to, I had no idea where I was or what had happened. The paramedics put me on the gurney and that was the first time I went flatlined. They had to bring out the paddles to, you know, shock me back to life. And over the next 90 minutes, I flatlined nine times in 90 minutes. And what happened for me was I had to look at my life and say, is this the life I want? I was having, I guess, a midlife crisis, but it was ultimately the thing that helped me to say, get out of jail free, Chip. <laughs> you don't have to die. And I can start rewriting the script of how I want to live my life. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. On tap today is a fantastic discussion. It's a discussion about how to reimagine aging to view aging not as something to be feared, but instead as something aspirational, an opportunity to share all that accrued wisdom, to channel it into a second act and leverage it to deepen and make more meaningful your connection with life, your connection with others, and of course, your connection with self. My guest for this odyssey is my new friend, Chip Conley, a hotelier and hospitality maverick Chip founded America's second largest boutique hotel company and subsequent to selling it, served as strategic advisor and global head of hospitality for Airbnb, where he was instrumental in guiding the founders of this then small but fast growing startup into the global hospitality behemoth it is today. In addition, Chip is an in-demand public speaker and multiple TED talker. He's a New York Times bestselling author, he sits on the board of Burning Man, and he's the founder of something called the Modern Elder Academy, which is the first midlife wisdom school dedicated to transforming aging. This one is pure gold, and it's coming right up, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. 
from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. (laughs) 
Okay, Chip Conley. So this one is obviously oriented towards those who are approaching or find themselves amidst that midlife stage of their professional career and their personal life. But honestly, it's also really for anyone and everyone who's just looking to weave a little bit more meaning and fulfillment into their life, into their professional life in particular. And especially it's for those who have pursued a certain career track for some time and are now in that place of contemplating new possibilities. We discuss overcoming our fear of aging. We talk about navigating midlife transitions, what it means to be a modern elder, the critical role elder wisdom can and should play in the workplace, and how to think about receive and give mentorship. We also talk about mindset, we talk about identity, getting clear on what is essential to being fulfilled. We discuss the difference between pursuing accumulation versus the pursuit of attunement and the reimagination of continuing education as well as community living. Final thing before we dig in, if you're inspired by this conversation with Chip, as I suspect you will, he's hosting a few workshops in Baja in June and early July. And he just launched this new eight-week online course entitled Designing Your Purposeful Path to Work, which starts June 4. For links to all of this, check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com, or you can just go directly to modernelderacademy.com. Chip is a wonderful man. He's a beautiful spirit. This conversation is gonna leave you pondering your life a little bit more deeply and uh, hopefully put a smile on your face along the way. So here we go. This is me and Chip Conley. Well, it's good to see you. It's been a couple of weeks since Thank we you. met down in Miami. Yeah. I haven't shaved since. I'm trying to cultivate my modern elder Your look. modern elder look. My you modern look, elder aesthetic. You're looking wise. <laughs> um, and I can't wait to dig into all of this uh, with you today. Yeah. Um, and I was reflecting as I was driving in, wrapping my head around you know, how to approach this with you. And top of mind is a conversation that I had just a couple of days ago. We had this guy, Mike Fremont in here, who's a hundred years old. Like he turned a hundred this year. Wow. And he set like the world record for the marathon at age 90. He holds like all kinds of age group running records. And, uh, and he kind of kicked it off by saying, I'm having the best time of my life. Like I'm the happiest now that I've ever been, you know? Mm -hmm. And he like, he's a little hard of hearing and you know, he's a hundred years old, but like to hear <laughs> him say like, oh yeah, like life is really great right now is something, you yeah. know, counterintuitive, but also like right in the sweet spot of, you know, your lane and the things yeah. that you're passionate about. Well, what's fascinating is there's a societal narrative on aging and then there's a personal narrative. The societal narrative is, if you can survive your midlife crisis around 45 or 50, on the other side of that, you have disease and decrepitude and then you die. Right. And the reality is the personal narrative on people's aging is very different than that. And there's something called the U-curve of happiness. Mm -hmm. It's gotten a lot of social science research uh, attention. And the idea of it is once you hit around 47.2, although your mileage may vary, um, with each passing decade after that, you get happier and happier. So you're happier in your 50s than your 40s, 60s than 50s, 70s than 60s. And you start to see some leveling out and a decline in happiness around the last two or three years of your life. So if you're living to 100 and maybe who knows how long he'll live, you know, he's probably still on the stride going up. Yeah. 
But what's so strange is the gap between the personal narrative, which is actually people do get happier as after age 50 mm. and the societal narrative, which is you're all downhill after about age 40. But I would suspect that that uh, happiness quotient would calibrate to you know you still finding purpose and meaning in however you're spending your time, right? Like the way we think about aging is so unhealthy. It's like this black hole. Like you know, there's and I know you've talked about this. There's childhood, there's adulthood, and then what? Like what happens for forty <laughs> or fifty years? Like we don't really talk about it. You've right. dubbed it elderhood, but short of housing people in these horrible, you know, sort of assisted living situations, we haven't really created any kind of modern forward thinking kind of uh, programming around like how to get the most out of these many decades later in life. You know, if you're gonna live till 90, which is, you know, very, likely for a lot of us. My parents are 84. Neither one of them has been a huge athlete. Um, uh, and they're on a six week vacation right now at mm -hmm. 80, age 84. So if you live till 90 and you're 54, which is a little bit younger than you, um, you're halfway through your adult life if you start counting at age 18. And we don't think about life that way. We very much underestimate how much adult life we have ahead of us. We also overestimate how long we're gonna be an invalid. Um, and there's something called compressed morbidity uh, in the medical field. And it means that in essence, the time of your life when you're sort of on the verge of death is a much shorter period on average than it used to be. So you've got, you know, at what, what uh, Mary Catherine Bateson would call is, she calls it the midlife atrium. She says that having additional life, having additional years, because longevity in the year 1900 was 47 on average. Uh -huh. And by the year 2000, it was 77. She says, all of those additional years are not like having extra bedrooms in the backyard of your house, like you're old longer. No, she says, it's like having a midlife atrium. And the midlife atrium means there's light and air and additional space happening in the middle of your life. So you're in midlife longer. And yet we have very little in the way of society, resources, tools, or even thinking around what midlife is supposed to be. Yeah. But historically, we were much better at this. Any kind of indigenous uh, culture has a reverence and a respect for their elders that we somehow forgot as we modernized. Well, we as the Western society, yeah. I mean, it, it still exists in indigenous societies. It still exists a little bit in Asia and Latin America, but quite frankly, everywhere in the world, you know, if you had a choice between going to grandpa or Google to go get your information, you go to Google. Mm -hmm, right. <laughs> and I think that that has meant that we have lost that opportunity to tap into the wisdom of the elders. But I don't think we're gonna go back to that. I don't think, the, I don't think we're in, in an era where it's gonna be all about reverence of the elders again. Um, I think it's about relevance. So how do we help our elders and elders, if you could be an elder at 40, if you are, I mean, Terry Crews, who you had on the mm -hmm. show recently, um, you know, he's an elder and he's in his fifties, but he was an elder when he was in his forties amongst some of the people he was hanging around. And so how do we create a, a relationship between the young and the old in such a way that they can learn from each other? Yeah, um, my wife's father, he passed away a couple of years ago at, at, at 91, um, but he was a civil engineer in Alaska and Anchorage and was instrumental in the construction of a lot of the downtown 
buildings and institutions, including like their fabulous art museum. And he worked with a lot of the construction entities were run by Native American, mm -hmm. you know, people who have that reverence and respect. And even though he was like losing his sight and all of these things, they kept like hiring him for all of these jobs up until like the very end of his life. Like he was gaining, making more money and more kind of like meaningfully employed than he had been throughout his career, which speaks to relevance and him continuing to find meaning in, in his life. And yes, we're not going back to that, but I think this idea of, of relevance is so important as exemplified, you know, through your experience with, with Airbnb. So maybe we can kind of step back a little bit sure. and kind of contextualize this with your, with your story. So my story is, uh, you know, grew up in Southern California, went up to Northern California for college. And we both yes, went to Stanford. Couple you, years. you swam, <laughs> I, I played water polo. You were a water polo player. We were a couple of years separated, yes. but we have some common friends from we that do. era. And uh, we used to swim in the same pool. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to business school there and a couple of years out of that uh, business school started a boutique hotel company. One you went the, straight to Stanford Business School I went, right yeah, out of that, I, that. That would rarely happen these It really days. doesn't. I was 23 when I graduated from Stanford Business School. Very unusual. Seth Godin and I were the two youngest people in our class. Um, I heard on when you, when you were on Tim Ferriss's podcast talking about the kind of mastermind group that you yes. formed with him and you guys would get together and talk about business ideas and you ended up co-writing a book with Seth. I right did. In, Business school. That I did, and we and we're we're deep close friends because we were both sort of weirdos in in business school. Um, so a couple years out of out of business school, I started a boutique hotel company called Joie de Vivre, um, joy meaning joy of life, and uh, created fifty two boutique hotels around California. And then I sold it, and we can come back to that possibly. And mm -hmm. I sold it partly because my life was falling apart. We'll come back to that let's go forward and say, okay, I created some space in my life. And that's when I was called by Brian Chesky, um, the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. And I quite frankly, 10 years ago, didn't know what Airbnb was. You know, I was this hotelier who was about to get disrupted by Airbnb mm -hmm. and I didn't really know what, what this was. And um, he asked if I could be his in-house mentor and help this little tech startup become a, a global hospitality brand. Mm -hmm. and. So I joined and uh, quickly became known as the modern elder at Airbnb, <laughs> which was not exactly what I was, the title I was looking for. Yeah. Um, at age, what, you were I like was 52? 52. Right. I was 52, Brian was 31, average age in the company was 26. So do the math. And um, they called me the modern elder partly because they said, Joe Gebbia, one of the other co-founders said, Chip, you're as curious as you are wise. And I was like, oh, well, I don't love the title modern elder, but if, a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise and they know how to have the, al the right alchemy of curiosity and wisdom in their life. That describes me pretty well. Sure. And, and I wanna, sorry to interrupt, but I do yeah. wanna put a finer point on how you were able to kind of cultivate that curiosity in the wake of a successful exit from your company. Maybe we can come back to that because I think it is related to one other thing that you wanna talk about. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that and I'll, I'll just tell a little bit of that Airbnb story mm -hmm. now. Is that, is, sure. that sounds good? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so I joined this place. I'd never been in a tech company before. Um, I, I thought they wanted me for my knowledge of the hospitality industry, but frankly, it didn't really matter how many rooms a maid cleans in an eight hour shift in the mm -hmm. Airbnb host world. So 
I, you know, within actually it was the, the third day on the job, I was in a meeting where Brian had said, listen, go spend a lot of time with the engineers. You've never been in a tech company before. Start learning the lingo. And so I thought I was supposed to be the mentor, but at the end of an hour meeting with a bunch of engineers, I knew I was the intern. Um, right. I was like Robert De Niro, you know, in, yeah. the, in the movie with Anne Hathaway, but I, he came in as the, as the intern and he became the mentor. I was actually came in as the mentor and now I'm the intern. And what I realized is that I didn't understand the language, but that didn't mean I couldn't learn it. Uh, when I say the language, I meant like in that, that meeting, some, someone turned to me, the guy running the meeting, a 25 year old guy turns to me and says, Chip, if you shipped a feature and no one used it, did it really ship? And I was like, I have no idea what, what you're talking mean? about. <laughs> Shipping a feature, I've never worked in a tech company. Uh-huh. Like, so I, I had to acknowledge that I was not the smartest person in the room. I might've been the most curious person in the room at times and maybe the wisest, but I had to be open to learning. And my father said to me, uh, you know, Chip, if, uh, <laughs> how could you turn your fear into curiosity? And that was a really great reframe for me because I guess, uh, you know, at 52, having run a company for 24 years, taken it from one person to 3,500 people, there was a part of me that in, in my early to mid fifties, I was thinking, oh, what if my last career, uh, you know, step is a big mistake and I'm just a huge failure here. Mm. Um, so I think part of you know, what really helped was I was, real, I was willing to be humble and vulnerable about what I didn't know. And often I was asking questions that helped the company to see their blind spots or see our blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was that process that helped me to see that, gosh, you know, more tech companies could use a modern elder. I, I just watched, we, uh, we crashed. Right. And, you know, of course, and then there's Super Pumped and then there's the, yeah. the inventor uh, with Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, thank the God there's out. no Airbnb movie like that. This mini series, drama mini series of like, you know, these crash and burn tales. But if you look at it, none of those companies really had a modern elder. Well, it's interesting because you you wrote a blog post about this on your Wisdomwell blog. Yeah. I watched all those founder series, like I'm fascinated by them and they, they vary in in quality. But, you know, the 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 recurring theme is, you know, ego gets the best of these people when it spirals out of control. But in the example of Super Pumped, which is about Travis Kalanick and Uber, there actually was a modern elder in that context. They had Bill Gurley, who was the benchmark VC, the who's investor. sort of the stand-in for the modern elder, but yeah. he's butting up against an ego that is yeah. not having it. And that of course, you know, sows the seeds for the downfall yeah, of his and the, career. And the big difference for him, and you had Bruce Dunleavy uh, right. for, for WeWork, who I went to business school with, same class as me, but investors, don't have time to be 24 hours a day in-house at the company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Bill or Bruce will come to a meeting and say, okay, what's going on? And but then they go back and they look at the rest of their portfolio. And and ultimately Bill got more involved in the business. But quite frankly, he could see what happens in a meeting. And of course you'd see some signs of serious hubris. And part, partly that's because Silicon Valley wants hubris. Right. It's it's funny, you know. There's an element of like Silicon Valley uh, wants the the confident, super pumped CEO founder, 
And then they want them to miraculously move from hubris to humility right. you, as you a leader. Can't, it, it's the package. Like if you want the guy who has the massive vision and the audacity to not only dream big, but execute on that, you're gonna get the other side of it. You are, and this is why, uh, you know, Brian Chesky, let's talk about him for a moment. I, when Brian approached me and said, I want you to come in-house and full-time at Airbnb and be my mentor, but also be the head of global hospitality and strategy and a bunch of other things, you know, I had to look at him and say, okay, this guy, I'm 52, he's 31, I'm gonna report to him, but I'm gonna be his mentor. Mm -hmm. That's gonna be sort of odd. What's it gonna be like to report to my mentee? And I had to have a level of confidence that he wanted to learn and that he was, you know, he had the hubris to go out and raise money, but he had the humility to build a, a culture and a leadership team and and to maybe even take some direction occasionally from me. Yeah. And so I think that was the key. And, and that's rare. It is rare. And, and that's you know, why they're hats still, off to him. They're hats still to the founders and it's functional. It's amazing. I mean, yeah. you know, we have three founders at Airbnb. It's a, a, over a hundred billion dollar company now. It's the, by far the most valuable hospitality company in the world. And the three founders are still very actively involved. That's never happened before. There's never been a company that has had that. And I'm proud of, I mean, I, I made all kinds of mistakes while I was there and the company would have done well without me. And yet I am very proud that the three of those founders are still working together yeah. as they are, because I think the, the glue that needed to happen amongst the three was partly between me and a couple other people who helped them to, to mm -hmm. feel that sense of what each of them offered to the company and to each other. What's a, an example of some of the wisdom that you were able to impart and also the receptivity of Chesky and his team to what you had to offer? Sometimes it was as simple as, um, I mean, some of it was just little mechanical things because you know one of the things you get better at as you get older is you, you've had the pattern recognition in your life to see what worked and what didn't. And so some of it was simple stuff like, Brian, you went into that meeting trying to sell the leadership team on something. And you knew there were two people in that meeting on the team who were gonna probably be critics of it. What would have been great is if you had spent some one-on-one -on -one time with each of or both of them before the meeting. Mm. So they could actually air some of their concerns instead of feeling like they had to actually air it amongst everybody else, because then you could have adapted the plan a little bit. So that's a simple thing. Or another simple thing would be like at Thanksgiving, we had all been running just, crazy, you know, 70, 80, 90 hour weeks flying everywhere. We're a global company. And the leadership team's families weren't seeing us. And so it was Thanksgiving. And I said to Brian, what if you sent just a thank you note, maybe a bottle of wine or mm -hmm. some flowers to the spouses and family members of all the leadership team and just say this Thanksgiving, I just wanna say thanks to you. Uh, because what's happening behind the scenes, Brian, is, you know, Brian was not in, uh, he wasn't married, he didn't have kids, but he didn't realize that yeah. others did. And, you know, behind the scenes, there's this person, the spouse saying, I don't want you to work this much, mm -hmm. you know? And what we needed to really do is respect that. So those are, those are a couple of simple ideas, but we work, you know, I mean, Adam Newman wanted to do a major strategic partnership <laughs> with Airbnb right. and and Brian, Brian was sort of had some cognitive dissonance on it. He could see some some of the value of it at one time, but I said, Brian, you know, this guy is a messiah, right? You you you've seen you've seen him that act that way. 
How are you gonna create a logical business relationship with someone who believes they're the Messiah? So, but it was, I would say that a lot of my wisdom related to emotional intelligence, mm. how do you develop emotional intelligence as a leader um, when you've had no background in being a leader? Yeah. Um, why do you think that Brian singled you out for this role? Like what, I mean, you have this robust history of being a mentor that started, you know, actually quite early yeah. in, in, in your life and in your career. Um, but why do you think he, you know, A, had the foresight to see the need for a mentor and what was it about you that he, he found attractive? So Brian is got the most uh, voracious appetite for learning that I've ever met in my life. And so he, like when Airbnb in 2011 had this, um, someone like totally trashed an apartment, he decided to go to the head, the former head of the CIA to learn about safety and security and how how he could actually make the, um, the uh, Airbnb platform safer. Yeah. And, um, so he also had been talking to a guy named John Donahoe. So John's a friend of mine. Um, he, was, he and I were in YPO together and we were in the same forum. John's the uh, CEO of Nike now. But back then, uh, John was uh, about 10 years ago, the eBay, the eBay CEO. Mm-hmm. And so Brian, knowing that eBay had some similarities to Airbnb in terms of there was a, a two-sided marketplace. He was working with John as a, a, a mentor part-time. And so John, I think said to, to Brian, you know, you should talk to Chip. <laughs> and Brian was like, well, tell me more about Chip. And so as Brian learned more, Brian said, oh man, I wanna learn from him. Mm. Um, but, I, but I think what Brian initially was looking for was someone who had the knowledge of the hospitality and travel industry, because when I joined the company, no one in the company had that background at all. Right. Um, but I think what he learned over time was he said, I, you know, I hired you for your knowledge, but what I've really got gotten was your wisdom. And it's your wisdom of understanding people and leadership and strategy. So, um, so I think, you know, one of the things we get better at as we get older is holistic thinking. Mm-hmm. Arthur Brooks talks about this in his new book, From Strength to Strength. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's coming in soon. Oh, is he? He's scheduled, yeah, Oh yeah, man, yeah. He's, he, yeah. we're buddies. Um, yeah, you guys are like every time in researching like articles and stuff like that, it's like your name and him and, and yeah. his name always kind of are appearing in the same. I love, you know, he's so he, like, Speaking of super pumped, I mean, this is a guy yeah. who's adrenalized and um, I really enjoy uh, sometimes sparring with him, you know, uh, intellectual jousting. But in his book, From Strength to Strength, he talks about, you know, going from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence. Mm-hmm. Fluid intelligence is very focused, logical, you know, and it's about actually innovating within a certain linear course. But crystallized intelligence is when you are looking at things more holistically. Because one of the things that's interesting about our brain is as we age, we actually move from being very focused in the brain to actually having four wheel drive of the brain. We actually move much more lyrically and logically from one side, the right side to the left side. So, um, which is great because what it means is that we can actually look systemically and holistically at things mm-hmm. and connect the dots. It makes sense because you've accumulated so many experiences over the course of your life you get to a point where you're able to synthesize all of that information. And, and I feel like just, you know, at 55 now, like an ability to kind of see things a little bit more clearly than I could yeah. in younger years. I, I think the, whether it's wisdom or intuition, 
pattern recognition, you get to a place where the the right answer just sort of pops up. Um, and it's not because you've done some mathematical theory to get there. Mm-hmm. It's actually coming from your lived experience. I like to think of um, wisdom as metabolized experience, which leads to distilled compassion. Mm. And, and it's, so in both cases, the metabolizing of experience, how am I digesting my experience? leads to understanding yourself more, the world more, and then being able to have some level of compassion. Because I think wisdom without compassion, um, you know, is is just, you know, doing something for yourself. Right. Um, one of the things I did, uh, you know, early on, Rich, when I was 28 years old, so I started my boutique hotel company when I was 26. At 28, I realized I was clueless. I knew I was clueless at 26 too, because I never, I, like, bu- I bought a motel in San Francisco. Yeah in a bad neighborhood. Um, it, was, it was a pay by the hour motel, which if you know what that means, it means it was very popular at lunchtime. <laughs> People would come and have their little affair at lunchtime and then go home uh, or go back to the office. And so at age 28, two years into it, I realized like, I don't know if this business is gonna work. And we had the, the San Francisco Loma Prieta earthquake. And I was like, oh my God, we have no business now. So I started doing something that actually I would recommend everybody do. I mean, it's it's just simple about metabolizing experience. Every weekend, I would sit down with a diary. Somebody had given it to me as a diary. I didn't use it as a diary. I used it as a place to understand my wisdom. And so I called it my wisdom book. And um, each weekend I would create like three, four, maybe eight different bullet points of what I'd learned that week. Mm. And often the learning was painful. It was things like, oh man, you know, I, Linda Ronstad wanted to take over our whole hotel, but I took a day to get back to her travel agent and they booked something else. So it's like, okay, you know, simple lesson, which is like, okay, if a travel agent move is- Move quickly. Yeah, move quickly. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't, don't waste time. And so long story short is uh, every weekend for over 30 years, I sat down and wrote in the in one of 10 wisdom books and now Google Docs with what I learned that week. Mm. And the value in doing this is it actually allows you to start to metabolize your experience. You could do this for a team. You could say once a quarter, we as a leadership team are gonna do a vulnerable kind of experience where we said, what was my biggest lesson this quarter? And then let each person speak up about what was the lesson um, what did they learn from it and how they're gonna use it moving forward? Because that's a way we start to metabolize experience into wisdom. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's a practice that you still to this I day do, I still do, right? yeah, yeah. It's, it's I don't sort do it of every a, week. So let me be clear because I wanna be fully honest. Uh-huh. I do it once a month now. I don't do it every weekend anymore, okay. but I did it every weekend for about 30 years. Wow. It conjures in my mind, sort of a a hybrid between a very directed journaling exercise where you're going in, you're not just, you know, like doing morning pages where you're vomiting out whatever, you're very intentional about what it is that you're focused on writing about, matched with a practice that, you know, I've been in recovery for a long time. This is sort of like a daily thing Mm -hmm. to do an inventory, right? To like check yourself a little bit, like where am I going wrong? How did I contribute to that thing not going well, et cetera, which leads to, uh, you know, a deeper level of self-awareness. Yeah, it's, I wish someone had told me this. You know, it's such a simple practice, but such a profound one in the sense of our life is meant to be examined but not examined as if we did something wrong, mm-hmm. 
maybe we made a mistake, but the lesson from that mistake actually makes us smarter for the future or right. wiser for the future. And so I, you know, I recommend it for, you know, most of the people that I work with or, and, you know, I, there's about six CEOs I mentor today, you know, just as friends. I mean, I yeah. don't, I don't do it as a, for a living. Um, and I, I tell them, you know, it's really simple, but like so many things that are simple, it's a practice yeah, and you have to do it. Otherwise it won't mean yeah. anything. We should mention that the pay by hour hotel, Fleabag Motel in the, in the Tenderloin district of, of San Francisco became the Phoenix. I've yeah. stayed there many times. It's <laughs> such an epic hotel and you know, such a diverse dynamic neighborhood. I was in San Francisco this past weekend. I did not stay at the Phoenix. <laughs> Uh, I ended up staying at the the proper hotel, oh, yeah. which is on the edge of the oh, Tenderloin. Yeah. The Tenderloin has really not got not got much better, <laughs> you know. I bought since this I lived in San Francisco, thirty five years know. ago, and it's actually worse than it was thirty five years ago. It's yeah. one of the few neighborhoods in San Francisco that hasn't gentrified. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a seedy neighborhood, and and it it's uh, but there's a lot. It's it is seedy, and there's a lot of rich history there, sure. and a lot of really interesting cultural things. I was on the board of uh, Glide Memorial Church, Cecil Williams Church, mm. in the Tenderloin for many years, and uh, just beautiful. To, there's a lot of humanity there. Um, it's sort of like going to India. Yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the Phoenix became known as like the rock and roll hotel. Yeah. Like all the bands stayed there. Yeah. Like just legends of of music over the years, which is pretty cool. Like was that an intention going oh, yeah. into it, or did that grow out of? Like, I was just a twenty six year old. Factor I was a twenty six year old. Said you know I want to get into the boutique hotel business because it seems as if it's about to take off. So mm. Ian Schrager and Bill Kimpton were the first mm -hmm. two. U.S. boutique hoteliers. I was the one right after them, and I was like, "They're they're successful. I want to be successful too." And so, I said, "Each time we would create a hotel, let's imagine a magazine that defines the hotel." And I and because magazines and boutique hotels have something in common, they're niche oriented and lifestyle oriented. So that first hotel, the Phoenix, was based upon Rolling Stone magazine, wow. and we came up with five adjectives that defined Rolling Stone: funky, irreverent, adventurous, cool, and young at heart. And everything we did in creating that first hotel had to come back to those five mm -hmm. adjectives. And then miraculously, what we found was that the people who fell in love with the hotel were people who would use those five adjectives to describe themselves on a good day. So it was like, you are where you sleep. So that's what a boutique yeah. hotel is. It's sort of like a, an identity refreshment. It's, it's aspirational. And so every hotel, yeah. So the first hotel was all about rock and roll bands because at 26, like, oh yeah, I'd love to have, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Red Hot Chili Peppers staying here all at the same time on yeah. their way to becoming famous bands. And that happened a lot. Those three bands actually toured a lot together. Um, so that's how it started. And then all 52 of the boutique hotels were based upon different magazines. Yeah, and so different each one had its own magazine. It did, oh, or sometimes cool. a mixture of two. Like there's a Hotel Vitali in San Francisco, yeah. closed there too. in the pandemic. So mm. that was, that was um, Dwell meets Real Simple. So modern, urbane, fresh, natural, and nurturing. Mm. And so it was, you know, so in some ways I was like an armchair psychologist <laughs> right? by saying, okay, what are the, some of the personalities out there who would like to see a hotel that's their perfect habitat. Yeah, well, creativity is central to this, a knack for marketing, some foresight about where this industry was headed. It's hard to imagine at this point, a world without boutique hotels, yeah. like no young person is staying at a Hyatt or a Hilton. Well, know, they're actually like, staying in Airbnb. Well, yeah, exactly, <laughs> like, yeah, right. Um, actually, boutique hotels were even, sort of a precursor for Airbnb. Sure. 
Yeah, of course, like a bespoke mm -hmm. environment, right? And just having stayed at the at the proper, like that chain and many others owe its legacy to, you know, this kind of legwork that you did many years ago. Yeah, and if you look at if you go into almost any full service Hyatt or Hilton today, they are trying to be like a boutique hotel. The bar is sort of central, the music is definitely not the music of 20 years mm -hmm. ago. The design is very different than it used to be. So I think you know what what the chains realized, and then ultimately they bought many, many of the boutique hotels. My company mm -hmm. is part of Hyatt. Kimpton right. is part of Intercontinental. The irony of that, yeah. Marriott <laughs> hired Ian Schrager. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, there we go. Yeah. Um, the bottom line is, you know, uh, the big hotel chains realized that um, they mm. needed to get hip because the customer wanted more experience. They didn't just want a boring, predictable experience. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Back to this idea of creativity. It's interesting that, you know, out of business school, your initial kind of career path was commercial real estate. Not yeah. not exactly known for no. creative inspiration, Correct. right? Just buying office space and leasing it, et cetera. So how did you reconcile that creative spark that I'm sure you had some self-awareness around and maybe a latent desire to be an entrepreneur um, with being in that track and and then ultimately getting to the point where you were capable of manifesting it. So, you know, it's funny, uh, between my first and second year of business school, I worked in New York for Morgan Stanley's real estate division. Uh -huh. That's hard, I, it's so hard to, to visualize you I doing know, that. I know, I know, <laughs> but sort of classic, like you're uh -huh. a business school student. I mean, I'm, 
at, I was 22 between my first and second year of business school. The fact that I was wearing suspenders, smoking cigars and, do, and making deals as a Morgan Stanley real estate guy was sort of beyond me. But, and they, they loved me and gave me some great job offers you know, after business school, but I just knew, I think the question I had in my mind was, what do I wanna be when I grow up? And what's gonna take me there? Because actually the amount of money they were throwing at me and the amount of prestige they were gonna give me, they even knew that I wanted to be, a, you know, maybe back in the West Coast sometime soon. So they're gonna like bring me to New York for a year and then, you know, help run and open the office in LA, the real estate office. There's like, what, you don't do this for a 22 or 23 year old. Mm -hmm. But I turned it down. I turned down all the other job offers. I took a job out of business school for $2,000 a month, $24,000 a year, um, which was crazy. I mean, <laughs> the average salary out of business school at that point was about 85 to $90,000 a year. But I took it because it was working for a creative, what I thought was a creative real estate development company that was basically redeveloping what was called Showplace Square, um, which was South of Market. And, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to go work there. And, and, and the guy who ran the show uh, and founded it said you could become a partner within a year. And mm. so I went to work there, but it wasn't creative enough. I mean, I thought I, I, I chose creativity mm -hmm. over money. And even the creative real estate development thing I went to do wasn't creative enough for me. So that's when I... I, we, I get to know a guy named Bill Graham, Bill Graham, the concert promoter. Sure. So Bill Graham was building Shoreline Amphitheater down in Mountain View and, and the, on the peninsula in, in the Bay Area. And our CEO founder wanted me to do a deal with Bill Graham. <laughs> so, so we were gonna be his partner on Shoreline Amphitheater. I was like, okay, well, good luck. I mean, Bill's got, Graham's got the money. He knows how to develop it. What's our part in this thing? So ultimately there was no deal to be made, but Bill Graham, pulled me aside, he said, I like you, Sonny. He says, you know, and at this point I was 25. Um, I like your chutzpah. I like your, you know, you're, you're a mensch. You know what you really need to do is you really need to create a hotel in San Francisco for the rock and roll bands. Because wow. I have people coming to the Warfield and the Fillmore and they're coming to Great American Music Hall. And they, there's the only place they go is a, an old place called the Miyako that was in Japantown, which ultimately became the Hotel Kabuki, which is a Joie mm -hmm. de Vivre hotel. And they, they said, you know, there's no great place for them to stay. And that's when the light bulb the wheels started went, to turn uh, yeah. you know, over my head. And I was like, okay, maybe that's what I should do. So I went to the founder of our firm and I said, I have a really creative idea for you. And I told him what Bill Graham had said to me. And it was like, dude, we're not gonna get in the hotel business. Like we'll lose our shirts. It's uh -huh. a terrible business. Yeah, that's the thing with hotels, yeah, yeah, right? Like yeah. if you wanna lose a ton of money, get yeah, into hotels. Yeah, exactly. Same with restaurants, mm -hmm. you know, it's a sort of, uh, but I just said, you know what, I'm gonna go do it. And so I started this company, you know, on my 26th birthday and, and you know, and bought the, the motel on a 40 year land lease for $800,000. Can you imagine buying a 44 room property you know, on an acre of land in San Francisco for $800,000? You can't wow. buy a condo for $800,000 no, in San Francisco. A garage. Yeah, so I, that's what I bought. And here we are 36 years later and I still own the, the Phoenix, although we only have about two and a half, three years left yeah. on the land lease. So how did you, that story aside, like how did you transcend that, that kind of conventional wisdom around hotels are the way to lose money? I'm thinking about one of those, a scene in one of the Ocean's 11 yeah. movies where Brad Pitt, like he, it, it appears that he bought the standard hotel on Sunset <laughs> yes. and he's like hemorrhaging all the money that he had <laughs> stolen in the earlier movie. 
and everyone's making fun of him. That's so funny. That particular property, um, be, <laughs> before it was bought by um, Andre Blage uh, and made it into the standard, I had it in escrow, but it oh, was wow. an old Jewish convalescent home. And I'll never forget, um, so this is, you know, now we're getting in some good yeah, stories. Is- I walked through it after we were in escrow and this older Jewish woman came up to me and pulled on my, sh- on my shirt sleeve and she says, are you the guy who's gonna be actually buying this and throwing us out? Oh no. And I just had this <laughs> crisis of conscience. And I said, not gonna do that. Um, so- We'll let Brad Pitt do it. We'll let Brad Pitt yeah. do it, exactly. So what, so what did, I think what made us different and the reason we succeeded is we got clear that, you know, the reason a person chooses a boutique hotel is because there's an aspirational lifestyle piece to it. Now, Ian Schrager, who was really one of the first, he and Bill Kipton really were the mm-hmm. two first boutique hoteliers. They had different perspectives. So Schrager's perspective was, it's all about being cool, hip, and maybe even narcissistic. And so all of his, you know, all of his hotels were about, you know, getting behind the velvet rope. Sure. And uh, Kimpton's was much more sort of homespun European, uh, more like an inn kind of experience where you have a good good restaurant there and a wine hour. But they they sort of kept playing the same game over and over again. And my point of view was like, geez, let's, there's so many different kinds of personalities out mm. there. Let's have this very schizophrenic company mm-hmm. where we have 52 different hotels with all kinds of different personalities that we're actually serving. And so that, you know, that's how. Right. But that's riskier because some of those aren't gonna work. It's very riskier. It's riskier and it's and in some ways it's stupider because we were like, we were like a branding agency. Every single time we were creating a new hotel, it was a new brand, a new market we were going after. But it was very creative. It mm-hmm. was so much fun to create a hotel based upon Vanity Fair meets um Outside Magazine, yeah. uh, which was a place called Costa Noa, a, a luxury campground. And so it was just, I, I loved it until I hated it. So can I talk about that story now? Yeah, let's talk about that. Oy vey, oy vey, Rich. Yeah. I was so, oh man. So first of all, let's go back to, I was 26. So one of the things we haven't talked about yet is, so I played water polo at Stanford. I was in a fraternity at Stanford. Um, my, I was Stephen Townsend Conley Jr. My dad was, you know, Stephen Senior. My dad yeah. was a Marine captain in the re, in the reserves. Um, I went to the same high school as my dad. My dad was my baseball coach. I was the star pitcher. My dad was the scoutmaster and an Eagle Scout, and I was an Eagle Scout as well. Um, I went to the same high school as my dad. Played water polo and swam like my dad. Um, then went to Stanford University, like my dad. That's heavy. Got a there's girlfriend. A there's a lot. Got a girlfriend <laughs> in okay. freshman, freshman year of college, just like my dad did, who now ultimately you're really became betraying my mom. your truth. Exactly. Yeah. So I was like, oh my gosh. So I was on this path. Now I did join a different fraternity than my dad did. And I did play you water polo. Del- you were I was a fight del- Yeah, that's yeah. where all the water polo players were. All the water polo were. players mm-hmm. were there. But I had a secret. And the secret was something that I was way sub- subliminal, but I was gay. And I, I, you know, how was I ever gonna tell my dad, the Marine captain, you know, Stephen Sr., not Stephen Jr., chip off the old block that I was gay. Mm. And so what happened was in my early twenties, when I went to work for Morgan Stanley in New York, that was the first time I ever walked into a gay bar. And I was like, oh man, I, you know, it was like, in Wizard of Oz, when it goes from black and white to Technicolor, uh-huh. that's sort of what it felt like. And I was like, okay, but it was hard. And my process of coming out as someone who had been an all-American athlete and in a fraternity and 
the world I lived in, it was back then. I mean, today it's a totally different story, but back then it was pretty hard. So fast forward a couple of years later, I am now the CEO at age 26 of a boutique hotel company. Well, first, let me just let me just backtrack a little bit. Yeah. Like how yeah. did it go with Chip Senior? Chip Senior Chip had, off the old block. He really, da- so dad actually initially took it well and then not so well and wanted me to go to reparative therapy. And so I, I, I mean, can I talk? I can talk about yeah. this stuff. Okay. So I ended up going to therapy with a guy named Bernie Zilbergeld who wrote a book called Male Sexuality. He's no longer living. And he set me up with a surrogate because Bernie spent a bunch of time with me and he said, listen, dude, you know, you might be bisexual, but I'm pretty sure you're straight and you just need to you know, have the right woman with you. And there's this woman, Annie, and Annie oh is so God. hot. And I, <laughs> Annie is so hot. And so you're gonna have sex with Annie every two weeks. She's gonna report back to me about what actually happened. Uh-huh. And then you're gonna, you're just gonna, I, I can tell you, yeah, I know. Having I, sex yeah, like I can in a have transactional my, can, way? I mean, I, lights fucked out and I'm gonna like, yeah, actual sex. And this is also, this is during AIDS. This is like, this is 1984, 85. Uh, so, you know, of course we were safe uh, and I was having sex with her, but I was I was going back to Bernie and saying, you know, it doesn't feel the same as it did with Victor. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so um, long story short is uh, dad finally got used to the idea that, you know, mm-hmm. reparative therapy wasn't gonna work. and. Um, and the reason this is relevant to my boutique hotel career is because when I started my hotel company, there was an element for me, like I needed to prove myself. I needed to go say, okay, I am going to be successful. And because I'll be successful, you will admire and like me. Mm-hmm. And therefore um, it's my way of making up for the fact that I felt like I had both disappointed my dad, but also that I was not normal or I was not mm-hmm. as good as my fraternity brothers because I was gay and they were straight. Right, but you you could have stayed at Morgan Stanley and checked all of those boxes. So there was something percolating oh, inside of you that you, you needed to find a new and different way that was more in alignment with your blueprint. Isn't that interesting? And be successful in that regard. You know, it's very interesting, Rich, because there's an element for me, like somehow my true North knew and, and again, I, this is stereotyping, but as a, as a gay man, I had a great design eye. Okay, mm-hmm. is that inborn? I don't know what that is, says about gay men, but guess what? Gay men tend to have that. I'm pretty empathetic by nature. I'm pretty good at understanding other people and being open to being in service of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for all those reasons, boutique hotels made a lot of sense. And so I started this company it, it grows to be the second largest boutique hotel company in the US. Along the way, my sense of identity, my sense of who I am from age 26 to let's say 47 or 48 is dudes, I, you know, I, 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 am, I am this founder and CEO of, of yeah. this company that's grown to 3,500 employees. And, and then I had, it's like the, the, the world changed almost overnight. So it was early 2008, um, and uh, I could see the great recession coming based upon our numbers. Um, I had written a book, so I've written five books. And my mm-hmm. third book I had written a few months earlier called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. It became a huge hit and I was giving speeches on it and I was loving that. I loved writing, I loved speaking. It's like almost sudden, all of a sudden, like the thing that had been my calling, there's a new calling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the new calling is knocking on the door and I feel like a little bit 
um, you know, unloyal, uh, disloyal because the new calling was this writing speaking thing. And then I had, a, so I had a foster son, African-American foster son who was having some trouble with the law as an adult. And I had a long-term relationship potentially ending. I was running out of cash because of the great recession. And then one of my closest friends who has the exact same name I have, his name is Chip, not exact name, first name. So Chip takes his own life. He, he, um, he, he um, dies by suicide. And so to go to the funeral of a friend of yours who has the exact same name, strange name, and I was sort of in the early stage of a dark night of my own soul was really uncanny. And then soon after that, I, uh, so Gavin Newsom, uh, who's the governor of California was my first mentee when I was 35 and he was 28 before he was the mayor of San Francisco, before he was the governor of California. Um, so I went to his bachelor party at AT&T ballpark yeah. and I hit a, a triple out to the warning track and I was sliding into third base at age 48, 47, 48. And I was, I broke my ankle and then I got a back, uh, septic condition in my leg. And so I was on a strong antibiotic and I was giving a speech in St. Louis. And after the speech, um, I was sitting and signing books and I went, I went flatline. Well, I didn't go flatline, I went unconscious. Like literally at the signing table? At the signing table, I went unconscious. They put me on the ground. I guess I was out for like four or five minutes. Um, and they called the paramedics, thankfully. And I was on the ground. And next thing I knew I was coming to, I had no idea where I was or what, what, ha what had happened. The paramedics put me on the gurney and that was the first time I went flatlined. So I flatlined. Um, they had to bring out the paddles to you know shock me back to life. And over the next 90 minutes, I flatlined nine, nine times in 90 minutes. And what happened for me and how this relates to my whole history was I had this moment of, of you know, I can, we can talk about what it's like to go to the other side. Yeah, I definitely wanna- It was wanna, a true NDE. I definitely wanna hear more about that. Um, but what, what it really forced me to look at is how I had the, the, the hotelier's wake up call. Mm. I had to look at my life and say, is this the life I want? I was having, I guess, a midlife crisis in, in, in some way, but I was more than anything, I was having what Brené Brown, my friend would, would call a midlife unraveling. Like it was, everything was so tightly wound and it, it needed to unwind mm -hmm. some. Mm -hmm. And um, so- I, Did you have self-awareness of that at the time or were you kind of like pushing that down and just in the kind of move forward? I knew mindset? I was really unhappy. I knew I wasn't happy. I knew that when I was at Chip's funeral or and his, and his memorial service and people were telling their Chip stories and I had thought about going to the Golden Gate Bridge myself and jumping, I really was at that place of saying, I don't know how to, I don't know how to disengage from this identity I've created. Mm -hmm. The identity that defined me was this successful entrepreneur who's creative, who's, who creates an amazing culture, who happens to write books and give speeches and do TED talks. And all of this was the, the it was like the Wizard of Oz, but it's I was- It's a very aspirational identity that anybody would would wanna have. And obviously was the, the manifestation of what you had dreamed about. And- So how could you be unhappy in that condition? I, I was unhappy because I, first of all, I didn't, I, it wasn't creative enough. Let's go back to that. I had created a company that was a creativity company. 
But by the time we had 3,500 employees and now we're in the great recession and we've grown, opened 15 hotels in the last 21 months, like in the worst of times, like I, I was just uh, trying to keep the, the lights on. The lights and, on. Yeah, it's about and, spreadsheets and, and, and I loved writing. People. And then I was also have all this other stuff happening in my personal life, you know, my son and foster son and, and my relationship ending. And, and so what happened was I, you know, I had this flatline experience. I had Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl's book in my backpack. Um, I, mm. Because, you know, that's my way, <laughs> my way of knowing how dark I was at that time was I was carrying around Viktor Frankl's book as the reminder right. that I was not in a concentration camp. The concentration camp was my, in my in own mind. mind. Yeah, wow. So I, while I was in the hospital for a couple of days while they're doing all these tests, and ultimately they sort of said, I think we think you're allergic to augmenting the antibiotic you're on. So I was reading Viktor Frankl's book about being in a concentration camp and I came up with an equation, despair equals suffering minus meaning. Despair equals suffering minus mm. meaning. So if suffering is ever present, and if you're a Buddhist, you're, that's the first noble truth of Buddhism is you know suffering is ever present. Then despair and meaning are inversely proportional. So when you're going through a, a really crappy time, the key is to ask yourself, what's the meaning? And it really did take me 20 years back to when I said, okay, well, my, mem <laughs> my, my wisdom book, you know, what did I learn this week? What, so I really, I got very fixated on what am I learning? What mm -hmm. am I learning? And what's the meaning in this? And ultimately within two years, less than two years, I'd sold the company at the bottom of the great recession. Um, I had ended the ro romantic relationship I'd been in for a long time that wasn't working. I'd gotten my foster son out of prison out of San Quentin um, because a federal judge let him out and said, he's in this, he's not guilty. He, his constitutional rights were abridged. Wow. Um, and I was on a path to saying, I'm ready for the magic. I mean, I'm ready to actually create space in my life and see what emerges because I've spent the last two dozen years building this identity. And I don't, and I haven't, it's not a facade. I mean, I was the whole time I, I was living my truth but I was also getting to a place where my I was f so fixated with the identity mm -hmm. that I wasn't actually giving space for the sure. new creativity yeah, yeah. to come in. And so, yeah, and then it was not long after that that Airbnb came calling. So in the midst of experiencing that level of despair and the self-awareness that you had to find or attach some meaning to it, walk me through the process of how you identified that because I think you know, there's probably a lot of people who are experiencing some level of despair. It's been a really hard couple of years. Yep. Is the idea that there is universal meaning in all suffering, or is it that you have to find a personal connection, like your own definition of how it could be meaningful yeah. for you? Well, let's use Frankel for a minute. So, if Victor Frankel and you know, mm -hmm. folks were in in the concentration camp. What he says in his book is that when he saw people having hope and had a sense of the, the other side of this, um, not false hope. There, it, it, the people who actually died quickly were the ones who said, by this date, we are gonna be out of here. And that was a false hope because they had no control over you know, them being released by that date. But there was more of a focus on hope for what the future will be and how this experience will actually create a, maybe a better life for mm -hmm. them. And 
So that's not a bad way to look at it because what we do know is that when we're going through difficult times, it is exceptionally character building. It can be, you know, not for everybody. Sometimes people give up. Some people, sometimes people do whatever they do and, then, and, and you know, or they drink, they use distractions. They use alcohol, they use mm-hmm. drugs, they use porn, they use whatever it is to distract themselves from the learning. Uh, they use work sometimes as well. Um, so I think the key for me was to ask myself, how, how is my character? You know, this may not be a resume builder, you know, the surviving a downturn. Mm-hmm. So how do we, you know, to use some David Brooks th- thinking, how do we move from the resume values to the eulogy values? And the eulogy values are the values that people will say about you at your funeral. And they're the character qualities. Mm-hmm. And I think it was around that age, you know, in my late forties that I realized I'd spent my life building a resume and I'd built some character qualities along the way, but I was never really focused on how am I developing those character qualities. Right. And if you want a time to develop your character qualities, use the dark time to do that. Yeah. Because it's, the, it's an, except, an exceptional sure. time and it's a time where you actually often have to break habits. Yeah, I have my own experience with that. Yeah, yeah. Tell it's us. It's painful. Well, I mean, I'm not going to bore everyone who's listening to this. They're listening. With that. They can, like, they're on this show because they no. want to hear you. But I mean, you know, my my I had a version of that reckoning at at 40, and it was yeah. sort of a collision of a health scare with an existential crisis about how I was living my life. I was a corporate lawyer at the time and very unhappy, but also very much in the checking the boxes and and you know trying to make sure that I was the dutiful son to parents with high expectations etc mm-hmm. you know something that you know yeah. quite well and had to you know really deconstruct all of that and figure out who I wanted to be and then spent a decade trying to figure that out I'm still trying to figure it out and I found you know a a, a modality that I leveraged was endurance sports and all mm-hmm. of the kind of quiet time that comes with that that allowed me to, you know, develop a level of of self connection that I was lacking at the time, and ultimately leading me, you know, kind of into a more in, intuition based, mm-hmm. uh, heart centered place to be open to what was next. And you know, Airbnb didn't call, but you know, mm-hmm. slowly other opportunities came, and that's kind of why I'm sitting here today. And and that evolution, and having it be on display for others has been incredibly cathartic to people mm. to see your your process especially you know you're from 40 to 55 you know that is a, i would say you know u curve of happiness shows that 47.2 is the low point you know again your mileage may vary but from 40 to 55 a lot's going on um, i use another uh, emotional equation um, disappointment equals expectations minus reality right so disappointment equals like, so it, it's around 40 to 50, 55 that you start to come face to face with the expectations that you have for yourself, the perfect spouse, the you're supposed to be president of the United States, how much wealth you're supposed to have, the second home you're supposed to have, the kids who are perfect. And you know, in your 40s, you come face to face with the fact that none of that's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And you also may come face to face with the fact that this success script that you were handed by your parents is not the script that you wanna write for yourself. And is not leading to the fulfillment that was implicitly promised. That's right. 
And so, you know, lucky for me at 20, 22, I came out of the closet because it forced me to actually come face to face with my success script from my parents and, and my lovely parents. I love my parents and, you know, they've been, in, after a rough initial time, they've been incredibly supportive and loving. And, you know, I love the fact that they're on a six week vacation right now mm-hmm. at age 84. Um, but what I can say is that, you know, being able to deconstruct the success script in such a way that you recognize that you're the screenwriter of your own life and you need sometimes some guidance for how to write that screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because you may have constructed your life in a certain way and it's not just like, oh, okay, now I'm gonna go do this other thing. No, you actually have three kids and you get a spouse and you've got a mortgage and you're actually helping your ailing parents at the same time you're helping your teenagers. So you've got the sandwich generation going on. And so the process of doing that, I witnessed my father, my father who dutifully became a banker like his father Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, around his early forties said, you know, fuck this. I don't want to do this. And he he created a, a business when he had me at Stanford, my sister about to go to Stanford and then another sister gonna go to UC Berkeley a few years later. And he started a company at a time where it was really not opportune. So my father's been a role model for me in yeah, many ways. Interesting. Um, and I, you know, it is around our forties and fifties. And some people's reaction to all that is go get the, you know, the red Ferrari sure. or have the affair. And, you know, I mean, often that's just another form of a distraction. Yeah. Um, I wanna get into the mentorship piece, but before that, I'm not letting you off the hook on the near-death experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I wanna hear what that, what, what that was like specifically. Well, since it happened nine times in 90 minutes, and I had one particular nurse there by my side four of those nine times, and each time I would come out of my NDE, I would say to her, here's what I saw. And she would say to me, that's what you said last time. And the last time was only about six minutes ago. <laughs> um, so here's what here's what I saw, and you know I've I've hung out with a lot of NDE folks. Um, there's even a, a I'm fascinated by festivals because I've been, I'm a, you know a founding board member of the Burning Man nonprofit, and uh, there's a there's a festival in in northwestern Spain called the uh, Pilgrimage of the Near Death Experience, oh, um, wow. and everybody who has had a near death experience is put in a coffin that's open and you have a parade of coffins going down the street oh and you're waving God. at everybody wow. and everybody's drinking. And it's a, it sounds sort of weird and macabre, but um, so my experience was this. The first thing I noticed was that I was in a mountain chalet. So like maybe, you know, let's say eight or 10,000 feet in some mountain range. Um, it was like maybe a summer day. So there's no, I don't notice, I didn't notice any snow, but there was this huge skylight in the living room, the upstairs living room. And the skylight was um, open and there was light coming in and there was a kaleidoscope of colors that was actually being projected onto the wall. I was about maybe eight or 10 feet in the air, just sort of floating. I didn't see myself, I didn't observe myself. I just knew I was not on the ground. I was sort of observing from that place. Um, there There were birds chirping, it was gorgeous. I mean, it was sort of quite beautiful. And then the thing that was most noticeable was on the ground, it was this beautiful wood floor. 
And on the ground, there was this frangiapani scented, so like a tropically scented oil. It was very thick, like a viscous oil that was actually made it, created a sheen on the floor. And the oil was going toward the staircase going downstairs. But it's sort of like that Heinz 57 commercial anticipation. You know, it's like the oil was dripping down the stairs exceptionally slowly. So what I noticed more than every than anything of, around this, there was no other people. There was no there was no white light other than this light coming from the skylight, which was like a white light that led to the kaleidoscope of colors on the wall. What I noticed is how sensual it all was. The listening to the birds, the smelling of the frangipani, the beauty of it all. At some point, I I actually touched you know my my arm projected longer so I could touch the ground and touch the oil, and. I think more than anything, what I felt was this sense of spaciousness and slowness. Now, I had, um, in 2005, we opened the Hotel Vitali. Um, and the Hotel Vitali had uh, slippers in the room and one slipper said slow and the other slipper said down. So if you had your slippers on, it said slow down. Mm. And that was one of my ideas for this hotel that was supposed to be like almost like a spa hotel in the financial district. Slow down. So I was in my own NDE that was just telling me to slow down. That is the experience I had. That's what I take from it. The other thing I take, so because, because again, the, the dripping of the oil was so slow. So, you know, I might be out for two minutes or three minutes when I had my NDE and I'd come back and I felt like I'd been out for hours or days. But more than anything, what I got from it was just this deep sense of just, slowing down. And when I slowed down, I realized that I'd spent my life running away from my emotions. Mm. And what I, what I recognized was that I, because the, you know, the recession had come on and I was trying to figure out how to keep my company afloat. I was just a manic, crazy person. And I didn't want to be that way anymore. And I'd spent my life, I'd spent since age 21 meditating, but I'd stopped meditating at that point. I was no longer meditating. And so my exercise, I started practicing, you know, my meditation every morning and late in the day. And I just slowed my life down. And as I slowed my life down, I realized that I thought I loved what I was doing. And I did in some ways, my ego did. But one of the things that Carl Jung and Christian mystic Richard Rohr have talked about is the fact that the, and Richard Rohr has come to our modern elder academy oh, wow. as He's a amazing. student, as a student at 79 years old. Really? Yes, uh, you did, we'll talk he, about this. We'll talk okay. about this when we talk about <laughs> MEA. But um, so what I noticed was that when I slowed down, my ego started to melt. And Richard Rohr and Carl Jung have both said that your primary operating system for the first half of your life is your ego. And for the second half of your adult life, it's your soul. And yet none of us are issued operating instructions of how to move from driving automatic to driving stick shift. Mm. And it's almost like, you know, you're on a San Francisco yeah, um, hilly road during a rainstorm and you're on Hyde Street trying to drive up with the cable car, um, you know, the, the metal from the cable car uh, tracks, meaning you're spinning your wheels because the process of moving from ego to soul or from 
automatic to stick shift is a, it, there's, a, there's a complexity to it. And I had to have an NDE to recognize it and to slow down to see that I needed an operating system shift. Mm. And that's what happened. And I, um, it's a deeper, longer story than that. And I wrote a book called Emotional Equations about it. Um, but it was ultimately the thing that helped me to say, get out of jail free chip. <laughs> you don't have to die. You don't have to be like your friend Chip who had, had took his own life. And I can, I can start rewriting the script of how I wanna live my life. And, and ultimately my experience going to Airbnb was a perfect segue for me because instead of being the sage on the stage, the, you know, the hero, heroic mm -hmm. CEO, I was the guide on the side. Right, worker among workers. I was the worker amongst workers and I was the guy helping these three founders along with some other people. I mean, it was not just me, but I was really tightly wound with them to help them be successful. It's sort of like what a parent does with a child. Um, you, your, your ego doesn't have a space in that relationship. Yeah, what a beautiful insight and experience to have to take this thing and attach meaning to it. It's such a specific experience, right? Yeah. And in the many kind of flat lines that you had, that, that same vision recurred to you? Oh, yeah, the nurse kept saying, you're so funny, you keep telling me the same thing. Right, yeah. and so, uh, you know, what do you make of that? I mean, you could, you could say, well, this is your, your unconscious mind, your subconscious trying to get your attention, or you can go you know, down a more metaphysical rabbit hole with the whole thing. You being on the board of Burning Man and you know, all of that, I'm gonna predict that you're, you're seeing this as more of a, a, a metaphysical experience. Yeah, I mean, I saw it as this opportunity. I mean, I saw it as an opportunity for me to, to have the courage to change everything. Mm -hmm. And the metaphysical side of it was very much you know, it, this divine intervention and this sense like, okay, you know, you get, a, you get another chance chip. Right, you're not, you're not ready to go, but you're ready f to be reborn in a different way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, interestingly, my first hotel was called the Phoenix, the mythological sure, bird that right. rises from its own ashes. So I was ready to be regenerated, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. I was ready for a regeneration, um, but I didn't know how, to do that. And, um, and that's actually, I think a lot of people, a lot of, there's a lot of people who are sort of in that place of realizing this isn't working anymore. I don't need to have an NDE to learn mm -hmm. that, but how do I re-script my life? How do I sculpt it in a different way? How do I break through the blocks and you know the, the habits that are in my way? Yeah, and I think tragically, all too many may have some version of that epiphany, but, are feeling trapped in the circumstances of their life due to the things that you mentioned, the mortgage, the you know the responsibilities, et cetera. Yeah. And so then they live out their remaining days in tension between those two things and unable to kind of figure out a path forward uh, that would kind of resolve that internal conflict. There is so much health information out there it can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. 
Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Let's talk about mentorship because I, when I think of you and I look at you and in, in the limited amount of time that we spent together, to me, like you're this wise teacher. Like you are, you have the teacher gene. I think you you thrive in circumstances where you know whether it's on stage or one on one and in the modern elder academy where you're imparting you know some experience based wisdom that you've accumulated. I know you studied philosophy in college, et cetera. Mm. So this feels like very it. it my sense is that it feels very natural to you, not that it isn't like, you know, sort of trained over the years, but the mentorship thing to me feels like your real self eking out, you know, earlier in life before the NDEs and all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that at 35, you're mentoring Gavin Newsom, like <laughs> when did the mentorship thing start and yeah. how has that become a thing? And like kind of what role does that play in terms of you being a mentor and the importance of mentorship in general? So um, quite specifically with Gavin, um, he was a, an, an, a hospitality entrepreneur. He had a company called Plump Jack. Mm -hmm. I remember that living in San Francisco. Exactly. In the, so in yeah, the there was early a, 90s. There was, a wine, there was a wine store and there was a restaurant and then there was a hotel. Like right and, on Fillmore, yeah. like a Union Street area. Yeah, exactly, right? yeah. Cow Hollow. Mm -hmm. um, long story short is uh, his sister uh, came to me, Hillary, and she said, you know, my brother, could learn a few things from you. And I'd met her a few times and I'd met him, but I didn't know him as well as I knew her. Would you be open to mentoring him? <laughs> and and of course she hadn't asked him about this. Um, and I said, sure. And I, yeah, and partly she had read at that point, I think I'd written, I had written maybe, no, actually I hadn't written a book yet. No, I'd, but I'd written some columns, some business columns and she just sort of knew who I was. So long story short is, Every Friday, Gavin would come down to my office in Union Square from his offices in Cow Hollow in San Francisco. And um, we'd sit down and talk. And then ultimately he had brought me into his Plump Jack organization to help mentor some of the other leaders there and, and lead some offsite retreats for them. And then he wrote, ran for the board of supervisors in San Francisco. So we became on the board of supervisors, mm -hmm. which is like the city council. And then he became mayor. And when he became mayor, that's where it amped up because now here's this guy who's, I don't know, at that point he was in his thirties. Pretty think. young, yeah. Yeah, he was in his late thirties when he became mayor, if I'm not mistaken, or early forties, but he was um, a very young mayor. 
And San Francisco was going through a really difficult time. And so now I showed up at his office every Friday. <laughs> he was showing up at my office in the yeah. early days. Now I'm showing up at City Hall, room 200. And being his conciliary, I mean, I was sort of like the person he sought counsel from. And then he did the same thing. So with his like the chief of police and the fire chief and, you know, the head of human services and we would actually do offsite retreats and mm. I would help mentor some of them. And so that was a fascinating experience. And then he ultimately became governor and, and we still stay in touch pretty closely. Um, it's a trip though. Like you're, you're like, what am I doing? I mean, mentoring the mayor of San Francisco. <laughs> well, it's weird. Yeah. And, you know, and it was like Chip, everybody in the office knew Chip brings, you know, Gavin's lunch in a, and Chip's lunch in these sacks. And there was actually San Francisco Magazine once did a story about it, like this picture of me coming to Gavin's office with a sack uh -huh. lunch. And so, um, you know, and I, you know, the I've been lucky enough to be the, the, the CEO for the Burning Man CEO, um, the mentor for the Burning Man CEO, Marion Goodell. Um, uh, Liz Lambert, one of the best known boutique hoteliers in the US. Um, and of course, Brian Chesky and others. And I, you know, the, what I love about mentorship is in a great mentorship relationship, you as the mentor may learn as much as they will. And when I was at Airbnb, I had over a hundred mentees and um, over the course of seven and a half years, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. And I learned as much from them as they did from me. And and Brian once said this to me, Brian Chesky once said this to me, he said, Chip, you know, you you teach me EQ and I teach you DQ. <laughs> EQ being emotional intelligence, DQ being digital intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I think if we could look at mentorship, we have five generations in the workplace for the very first time. And if we could realize it, and, and you know, here's a couple other stats. For over 40% of Americans now have a boss that's younger than them. So my relationship with Brian was not as unusual as it might've been 25 years ago. Um, so we have something to learn from each other and being able to create mutual mentorship relationships where one person knows one thing that the other person wants to learn and vice versa, you know, it wouldn't take a lot of matchmaking technology in a large company to match employees as mentors. Mm. Um, because quite frankly, the beautiful thing about a mentorship relationship is it's, it's um, it, it's free form. It's affordable. You know, it doesn't cost anything. Um, and you know, bottom line is, I you know, Deloitte has shown in their studies that when people have a mentor in or, an organization, um, they are substantially more likely to stay in the organization. Mm -hmm. And in an era like we're in right now with the Great Resignation, where companies are saying, you know, we're losing people left and right you know, one of the best things you could do, not just for, you know, wisdom and knowledge transfer, but also for retention is create mentorship programs within an organization. Right. Um, there's great kinship between the idea of mentorship and the modern elder yes. idea, right? Yeah. Um, before we move off of this though, I think I'd like to hear a few thoughts on on going about finding a mentor mm. or, or soliciting your services as a mentor. I think there's a lot of people who think mentorship means I'm gonna email Seth Godin every single day for two years until <laughs> he finally relents and becomes my mentor. We think of these fancy names, yeah. people that we would like to have on call, but that's not really the heart of what it is. Like I'm always talking about the fact that there are mentors all around you, that's like right. find the people in your environment and figure out how you can contribute to their lives 
if yeah. you're gonna solicit their input into yours. Yeah, and be careful of like leading with the M word, you know, like mar- yeah, it's marriage. It's like, whoa. The M word, marriage, <laughs> like, you know, if you, if, you pop, if you pop the marriage question on like, the second day, it's a little too much. Yeah, like, like, I don't like, even know you. Yeah, like, exactly. So, so the way I would go about it uh, on either side, mentor or mentee, but maybe let's start with the mentee side is, let's say there's somebody you, you wanna learn from. Just say, hey, hey, could I take you out for coffee? Or could we go have tea? Or could I, like, can we just have a meal together? And um, if they're in your same organization, the likelihood is they're going to say yes. You know, if it's the CEO and you're you're you've been in the company a, a month as an intern, they may not say yes if it's a mm-hmm. huge company. But one of the ways to pose it is to say, hey, let's just have a little meal, and I just would love to tap into your wisdom. I mean, don't don't be shy about saying something like that, or even more specific, you say, I've noticed that you're really good at fill in the blank. I would like to learn from you. Can we just get together once mm-hmm. and have a conversation? And then don't expect a bigger commitment than that, but then have the one time conversation. And if it goes really well, and you can see that they're enjoying it as the as the mentor, say, hey, could, you know, in a month from now, could I, could we maybe get together again? And they're likely to say yes do it again. And at that point, if that second one is great, then say, you know, are you open to us maybe creating like a a short-term mentor relationship? Maybe we get together once a month or every two weeks for an hour and I ask questions Mm -hmm. and you give me some homework assignments, et cetera. But get at the point where you're ready to ask that, get specific about what you're looking for Um, and, and be clear that you're committed to it. I mean, the worst experience for a mentor is when a mentee goes through that whole process and then doesn't take it seriously, doesn't show up for the meeting, or mm-hmm. you know, says, "Okay, well, you know, I don't have time right now," or etc. Make the time. If you're not willing to make the time, then don't actually get, make the ask. Um, but also give it a finite period, because that's that way the other person doesn't feel like, "Oh no, <laughs> this is right. a, this for is a lifelong commitment." Life. Yeah. The other thing I would just say is there's two kinds of mentorship. There's um, mentorship that's performance, what I would call performance-based and then def- and then um, development-based. Performance-based is like finite. It's more of a mentorship relationship where you have information I want to learn. I need to ask you questions and you'll be my mentor, but it'll be a finite relationship because I wanna learn more about how to run a great meeting. Um, how to understand the travel industry, um, how to, uh, I don't know, code, to do simple coding. Um, so that's a finite relationship. It's performance driven in the sense that over the course of a short period of time, you can determine if you've gotten better at that. Mm-hmm. So you can have a lot of mentees if they're sort of that like that. They're like, okay, yeah, you can ask me questions every once in a while. And I understand you wanna learn about this thing. The other kind of relationship is a developmental relationship and it's a lot more comprehensive and it's more personal, professional, emotional, EQ. And that's when somebody really just wants a guide. You know, what um, one of my mentees called me her confidant. And I said, wow, okay, give me some juicy gossip. <laughs> and she said, well, no, no, a conf-, and she's French. And she said, when I say confidant and I mean it in sort of the French way, you're the one who gives me confidence. Mm. So it wasn't a knowledge transfer. 
it wasn't a knowledge transfer, which the first kind of relationship is. It's like, I'm transferring knowledge. The second kind of relationship is one that's more personal. And actually the person who's asking the questions is not the mentee. The person who's asking the questions is the mentor. And I'm asking questions about you to help you unlock who you are and, and help you guide you, be your permissionary to help give you the permission to do the things I think that you have the capability of doing. A lot of people think that that's what a mentorship relationship is, and it is. But this first kind is the more finite kind and allows you to have many relationships because they're, you know, it's specific to it's pretty a binary. knowledge transfer. Yeah. So being able to understand what kind of relationship uh, a person wants when it comes to mentorship <clears throat> is pretty important. Not to push back, but how many emails a day do you get from people asking to take you out for a cup of coffee. <laughs> you see, that's the thing. Like, it's, I, it's, it's nice to live in Baja just, most of the time because I'm not, I'm not. I get a lot of those emails, and yeah. it's just like I don't, you know, I can't do that. Like I, I yeah, I'm not in a position to do that. So I think it is really about who are the people in your environment. Yeah, I mean, know? when it's listen, if someone has come from out of the blue and I don't know them at all, I mean, I do get a lot of emails from people, and they, you know, they sweeten me up with all the things that they know I'll probably want to hear. And in those kinds of cases, I'm not gonna get on a Zoom call with them, but I will answer two or three questions by in an email, mm -hmm. I'll do that. And so if for those of you who are listening to this now and you wanna send me an email with a couple of questions, feel free to do that because I had people who helped me early on. There are times when I may say, oh man, I am barraged right now. So I'm gonna have my assistant actually tell you to write me back in a month or six months and then maybe I can answer some questions. But most of the time I do answer questions by email pretty quickly, assuming they're really simple an mm -hmm. simple answers. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like someone saying, hey, can I get, you know, just do a quick Zoom call with you? It's like, I think one of the lessons we've learned in the last two years is doing a simple Zoom call um, will wear you out if you do, you know, 12 of those in a row. Yeah. And so uh, for me, I also like to test somebody you know, if I say, if someone comes to me and says, you know, they want some of my time and I'm really, really barraged with stuff right now and I can't give any time, like come back to me in three months or six months. If they come back to me in three or six months and I can see that they've got something, to, I'll be, I'll take it a little more seriously. Right. Not because I didn't take them seriously the first time, but because they've shown me they have some uh, reliability and some desire. Um, and therefore I'll, I'm gonna try to recipro reciprocate if right. I can. I wanna talk about what it means to be a modern elder, defining what a modern elder is, but to kind of contextualize it, when I think of your tenure at Airbnb, coming in as a mentor, kind of emerging from that as this modern elder, and, and the success that that relationship engendered in terms of the company's prosperity, it seems to me that that should be like a Harvard Business School case study. Maybe it is, I don't know, but because it was so fruitful and productive, why doesn't every company yeah. institute some version of that? Because yeah. you know it was so valuable. Well, it's, the good news is the venture capital community and private equity community took notice and it led to a lot of those companies sort of saying, how are we going to, you know, the way venture capital and private equity works is often the person who's put in charge of the young CEO is a young partner or young associate 
at the venture capital mm-hmm. and private equity firm. So they're not necessarily the person it's not who Bill has, Gurley. It's not Bill Gurley. It, and it's not somebody who's really gonna have the wisdom or maybe the cojones, so to speak, to say to the, the person who's out of control, you're out of control. Um, so uh, what I think we're starting to see is a recognition that for their most high profile successful companies, they better have a gray hair, you know, you know, in the midst and not just showing up once a month at a meeting, but actually having, creating a mentorship relationship. They're also, you're also seeing a lot more coaches being almost assigned to young CEOs such that the coach has that role. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, that's not a bad thing as well. Coaches can be spectacular, um, but, it, but often if the coach doesn't have the operating experience, you know, they may not be able to keep up with the young CEO when they're talking about what's going on. Right, and this is this is pretty specific to kind of, you know, youth culture driven business, startup culture. Yep. But in truth, like the Fortune 500, the Coca-Cola's, like yeah. these huge companies are, are the opposite. It's Correct. full of gray hairs. The whole C-suite is yes. ancient. It's almost like they need a young mentor uh, who will be taken seriously to say, here's why you're gonna be completely out of business in five years, unless you listen to kind of what my generation is looking for. Yeah, uh, you know, you're exactly right. Ageism works in both directions. A lot of times when we, when we hear the word ageism, at least in my world, I think of like oh, older people who are being discriminated against. It's the opposite as well. Young people being discriminated against or not being given the opportunity to have a voice um, in organizations that could use some shaking up. So. Yeah, it goes. It definitely goes both ways. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think uh, I would just I would say that we we're living in an era where um, this idea of an intergenerational potluck, where we all bring to the table that which we do or know best, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And there's a lot of there's a huge amount of research on this. So diversity often in companies doesn't think about age diversity. We talk about, you know, race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, but like, okay, age diversity is important as well. And there's a bunch of studies that have come out recently that have shown that when you create age diverse teams, you get the best of both worlds. You get that brilliance, that focus, that quick thinking young young spirit along with the ability to metabolize or think holistically mm-hmm. um, and think beyond their own ego and, and, and actually create that psychological safety. Fascinating study you know, Google did that showed that psychological safety was the number one um, ingredient of effective teams. And psychological safety is helped by having age diversity on a team. So I think there's, I think we're in the early stages of realizing that Age is an important diversity metric, just like the other ones. Sure. For that to work and and be productive, for that dynamic to be functional between uh, older and younger, it does require a level of like respect and humility and the capacity to listen and take seriously what the other person is saying, because I think both both camps sort of look at each other as dum-dums, you know, like, oh, these old people, they, they're checked out. They don't know what they're doing. This young, these young people, like, they, you know, they're, they, they, their brains aren't even fully formed yet. Why should I listen to these people? Yeah, I'm, this is part of the reasons, you know, there's, yeah. I'm looking forward to doing something later this year. I mean, I'll mention it now, but, you know, we're, we don't even have a website up for it yet, but 
Um, there's a guy named Michael Hebb who started Death Over Dinner. So it's a movement globally, over a million people have done this, where they have this Jeffersonian dinners, topics, converse, conversations about um, the subject of death. And there's you could have one of three or four or five different topics that you and a few friends can mm. actually talk about over dinner. Well, I think generations over dinner. Generations over dinner is an idea whose time has come. I like which that. means you bring a bunch of generations to like three generations, five generations, maybe even seven generations. <clears throat> we have seven generations living still. Um, bring them to a table and have a topic about, you know, how do you solve climate change? Um, how do you address intergenerational collaboration in the workplace? Um, you know, what happens in the various life stages? And the, and the wisdom would go in both directions. And you could sort of say, oh, we just had a six generation dinner or we had a four generation dinner. And so it's something we're gonna be launching later this summer. Um, we have an, an, a nonprofit called AGE, the Association for Growth and Education that focuses on intergenerational collaboration. Um, and so keep an eye out for that. That's cool. Uh, the I really generations like that. over dinner. Yeah, I really like that idea. Um, all right, let's talk about the Modern Elder Academy. So w walk me through this epiphany and how you've created this amazing thing out of out of that idea. Yeah, you know, so I went down to Baja. So, so Southern Baja near Cabo San Lucas, about an hour north, place called Todos Santos Pescadero area um, on the beach. I had a home there and I was gonna start writing my fifth book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. So as I'm writing that book, I'm going for runs on the beach. And one day I went for a run on, run on the beach and I had a Baja aha. I had an epiphany. <laughs> and, as one is wont to do. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We are we like, this is an area where there's a midwife for epiphanies. It's like something strange about this particular area that I live in. Um, and the, the epiphany I had was this, is that, you know, the word adolescence didn't exist in 1903. In 1904, it came to in, into being because a, a psychologist named Stanley Hall created it and said, hey, there's a life stage that happens between puberty and 18. And it's, you're still a child, but you're on the threshold of adulthood. Uh, and you're going through emotional and, and physical and identity transitions. Okay, and then after the after 1904, now we had public junior high schools and high schools, in you know more prevalent. You had child labor laws. You had people not getting married at age 14 and having mm -hmm. babies when they're 15. So long story short is adolescence became a thing. Well, about 20 years ago, a, a new term got coined called middlescence. Middlescence is the adult corollary to adolescence. Um, and it's when you're going through physical and hormonal and um, identity transitions often between around age 40 and 60. Um, so the core of, core of midlife. So I had this run and I came back. It's like, why do we not have any middlescence school? We have adolescence. We give all this guidance and schools and tools and rites of passage and rituals for people in adolescence, but we have nothing for middlescence. And uh, what if we were to create the world's first midlife wisdom school, a place where people come to cultivate and harvest their wisdom and reimagine and repurpose it? And um, so this was uh, about four and a half years ago, I had the idea, we opened January, 2018, and we've had now 2,200 people from 33 countries come to our programs, usually a week long program uh, in Baja, but we also have programs online as well. Um, and the whole intent is to help people to, so reframe their relationship with aging. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, the average age is 54, but 15%, but 14% of the people who come mm -hmm. are millennials. 
So this is not just people. That's super interesting. Isn't it interesting that people in their 30s uh, and, and the motivation even, is, 20. I just want to be in I, a growth mindset and I be wanna, thinking about this before it becomes, you know. And I want to start to mine my wisdom. And I also want to be around people 20 years older than me to learn from their wisdom. Mm. Um, so yeah, and we have a great faculty. We have everybody from Paul Hawken who's been on your show to Michael Franti, the musician, Matthew Ricard, the famous Buddhist monk. Um, Sherry Lansing has done shows for us. John Donahoe, CEO of Nike is on our upcoming Purpose um, online course. So lots of really interesting people yeah. who are helping people, helping all of us to reframe that relationship with aging and look at how we might regenerate ourselves. Because the the narrative we have about aging is you you age, you work, you re, then you retire. You have three stages in life. You learn till you're 20, 20 or 25, you earn till you're 60 or 65, and then you retire till you die. And if you look at a millennial today, they're like, what the hell is that tyranny of the three stage life? You know, I wanna actually work. I want, I'm gonna learn till I'm 20 or 25 and then I'm gonna, work for 10 years and then I'm gonna take a year off. I'm gonna do a gap year. Mm -hmm. And then I'm gonna go get a master's. I'm gonna learn again. And then I'm gonna go retire. I'm gonna work for 10 years and start a company and then retire and then go back to, and get a PhD. And <laughs> you know, it's more episodic. It's yeah. not like you have these three stages of life um, that are age defined. And um, so that, you know, that led us, you know, with MEA becoming very popular and, uh, led us to creating regenerative communities and these idea of, let's get rid of the idea of retirement communities. Yeah, this is the real exciting part. Rich, are you gonna live me. in a retirement community someday? It's, it's, the, it's the most depressing, horrific <laughs> you know, aspect of our culture to just warehouse old people and it, it, hide them. It's away. a form of age apartheid. Let's like yeah. take those people and put them in a place where we can't see them so they're with each other. And, and let's also recognize that frankly, Earlier generations sort of saw it, and you know our parents may have enjoyed it, but there's also this weird sense that you know back in the old days, if you were working on the factory floor, or you were, um, you know, you were a, a school teacher, you know, your whole life, you got to sixty and you said, "Thank God, I'm retiring." because I can't do the, the factory floor work anymore, or I'm just so tired of this work or, you know, being a house cleaner or whatever it was. And, you know, we have a lot more knowledge workers today. Mm -hmm. and, the, and I think we have a lot more wisdom workers. That's a, a phrase that I think is gonna come into being. But the knowledge workers, can they can work till their 70s or their 80s or whenever. It's not physical labor that actually defines how they get paid. And so more and more of them are of the mindset, like I'm, I don't wanna retire and, or, or I can't afford to retire. Mm -hmm. If I'm gonna live till 90 or 95, I can't retire at 62. And also that generation is is far more inclined to be pursuing work that has personal meaning to them mm, than, you know, yeah. we're we're our legacy is that that three chapter kind of mm -hmm. approach to life. That's what our parents did and we kind of were reared yeah. with that sensibility and now we're in our 50s and 60s and a lot of us are having those kind of crisis moments. But over the course of those many decades leading up to it, there is a calcification around mindset. This is who I am. This is what I do. Here's what I can expect for my life. Here's how I see the world. This is the people that I vote for. And this is, you know, these are the things that I talk about. So one of the 
critical kind of tools that you leverage at the Modern Elder Academy that I wanna hear a little bit more about is just getting really clear on what your mindset is so yeah. that you can begin the process of deconstructing it and perhaps you know telling yourself a new story. Yeah, well, so there's four key um, pillars of our curriculum. The first one's reframing aging, helping people to see that maybe their best life, their best years are ahead of them. Right, can this be aspirational? It can be, and you know, it, it, some things get better with age. I, I love that your, your listeners and your community is very much about keeping the body alive, keep, and, but, but you you don't you certain things get actually better with age, you know your emotion your emotional intelligence grows with age, your spiritual awareness grows with age, so there's a lot of things that actually get better with age and and it, yes if you work on your body and your health and your nutrition it might get better with age as well, uh, you're a great example of that, so there's that reframing aging then there's mindset, so. There's growth and fixed mindset. We're big fans of Carol Dweck's work at Stanford. And so a, a fixed mindset is when you tend to think of life as I'm here to prove myself and I define success as winning. The problem if you have that point of view as you get older is you stop playing the games you can't win. And that means your, your sandbox gets smaller and smaller. And as it gets smaller, you actually get more bored because you're not trying new things. So moving from a fix to a growth mindset means moving from proving yourself to improving yourself. And, for, and instead of focused on, focusing on winning, you focus on learning. And so you move into this way of thinking and way of being of, okay, I am just a learning machine. I'm not a machine, I'm a learning human. Uh, one of the questions we ask at MEA is, what is it that you know now or ha have you done now? that you wish you'd known or done 10 years ago? Think about that for a moment. And then ask yourself 10 years from now, what will you regret if you don't learn it or do it now? Mm. And this is how I started to learn how to surf at age 57. Um, because I live on a beach near a surf break, somewhat famous one. And I was like, ain't gonna be any easier at 67 than 57, Chip. <laughs> so I gotta start learning uh. that. I also you know, started learning Spanish. Again, the mantra in my head, the mindset was, I'm too old for this, too old to learn the language, but harder to learn it at 67 than 57. And I knew that I was gonna be living in Mexico, so why not learn it? So, so the first is reframing aging. The second is shifting your mindset. The third is learning about transitions. None of us were taught you know, and got a master's in TQ, transitional intelligence. But midlife is full of transitions. Life is full of transitions. Life is liminal. You're, you're usually in between two things. And yet we've never really been taught, you know, what are the, the, what's the anatomy of a transition and how do I architect moving through a transition, whether it's getting divorced or, you know, um, changing where I live or changing my career or retiring or seeing my parents to passing away or becoming an empty nester or going through menopause or men go through andropause. There's a lot of transitions mm -hmm. in midlife. Um, and learning how to understand the three stages of a transition is a big part of our program. And then the final piece of the curriculum is regeneration in all its forms. We have regenerative cell therapy. I mean, stem cell work, mm -hmm. regeneration through understanding a regenerative purpose. 
But also, and this is where Paul Hawking comes in, regenerative agriculture right. and farming. And that's what leads us to our regenerative communities, which our first one being in Baja with 26 homes around a regenerative farm. So instead of living on a fairway, wouldn't you like to live on a farm and go out into the farm and go harvest with your neighbors and do a potluck once a week? Uh, and so now we're taking this to Santa Fe and we have three different properties in Santa Fe, two of which will be academies, one of which will be a regenerative residential community. Um, and I do believe that we are creating something that is meant to disrupt senior living. Right, It's it's uh, it disrupts higher education, mm -hmm. some form of education, and then this whole kind of area that's so ripe for disruption, senior yeah. living. But it's leveraging all this experience that you had as a hotelier. Like, it's not <laughs> that dissimilar. Like, oh, I'm gonna disrupt the hotel industry. Yeah. I, I understand that skill set. Now I'm gonna apply it to this other area that is that that desperately we need something better and healthier. Like, I've been I think lucky, that's really exciting. Lucky to be a disruptor twice in the hospitality industry, first as a boutique hotelier and then at Airbnb. But I, 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 you know, you don't start something to disrupt it. I mean, that's that's not the intent. Mm -hmm. You start something because you have an it's idea. It's a natural outgrowth of everything. That's that you're right. Doing. You have an idea, and then the idea sort of takes off, and then we hear from people saying, "Chip, you know, long life learning. That's what you're doing. You're not doing lifelong learning. You're doing long life learning." And more and more colleges and universities who are in the process of being disrupted in all kinds of ways right now. Clay Christensen, the guy who created the term disruptive innovation before he passed away five years ago said, you know, 50% uh, of the colleges and universities in the United States will be out of business in 10 to 15 years. So colleges and universities need to start thinking about midlife wisdom schools or these places. And, and to be fair, a lot of colleges are have programs, it. but they're, it's sort of traditional curriculum it's, oriented. It's accumulating knowledge. It's more like I'm going, I'm gonna- It's not experiential. It's, I'm a 50 year old sitting in a classroom of 20 year olds and I'm learning biology or I'm learning, you know, um, philosophy, but it actually isn't, you know, I wrote, we, I wrote a um, white paper called The Emergence of Long Life Learning to study with a PhD who wrote it with me, how do people learn differently at 55? How, what's important to them? How do they learn differently? And that actually had a huge impact on how we have created our curriculum because we actually, at, at, at MEA, we don't, wisdom is not taught, it's shared. Mm -hmm. So how do you create the crucible for a collection of 20 people over the course of a week? to ha learn a bunch of things, but then actually share experience and in small dyad partners one-on-one -on -one with each other, have these conversations of how it's applicable to them. And that, how it's gonna be applicable to you at 55 or at 45 is different than it is at 25. So yes, long, long, lifelong learning is a thing, but long life learning is a subset of it focused on how to live a life that's as deep and meaningful as it is long, because we have gotten the quantity right. L longevity has grown a lot. The quality is the thing that I think people need mm -hmm. to focus more on. Mm. A big piece in trying to engender your life with that level of quality is this transition that you speak about from accumulation to attunement. Mm -hmm. So speak about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, the first half of our life is about accumulating accumulating knowledge and friends and obligations and you know romantic partners and then marriage possibly and children you get to age 45 or so and you say oh my god i've got this burden i've got like i've got a lot of baggage 
And the second half of your life is now about editing that baggage. So you move from accumulating to editing and you move from the attainment part of your life. And it doesn't mean you don't have attainment throughout your life, you do. But I gotta tell you, and as someone who's like a you know, first class attainer, um, you, your attainment at some point as your ego starts to shift, that operating system of the ego shifts to the soul, you move from attaining to attuning. What's the difference? Attaining, when you're in the attainment mode, you will atone later because you may have sharp <laughs> elbows. Um, you're you're yeah. sort of like, you're when you're actually attaining, Attain, atone, you're atone. very selfishly focused and it, you might be a gracious person, but you're deeply focused on the finish, the finish line. And it's, you know, that's the hedonic treadmill. It's when we sort of realized, man, I'm, I keep putting finish lines there and I feel a sense of accomplishment, but I don't necessarily feel the sense of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so moving from attainment to attunement moves from atoning afterwards to feeling at one. So when you're in the attune phase, you're sort of like harmonizing. So surfing is an attunement sport. You know, you better attune with the wave. Um, so many things as we get older become attunement, uh, opportunities for attunement. Um, and as we learn how to attune, we actually are know how to create sort of that psychological safety in a, in a team. We know how to actually create what's called environmental mastery. This is something we get better at as we get older. It's not about the ecosystem or you know the, the dirt on the ground. Environmental mastery means you actually know how to repot yourself in the right habitats and flourish. It's a psychological quality. It's a social science research that shows that as we get older, we understand where we will flourish and mm. you, you are better and more adept at being able to discern where that will be. Mm. And so that becomes a part of it as well. And that's <clears throat> attuning with the right environment. It's part of the reason why, frankly, at age 50, we sort of get to a place where like, I have no more fucks to give. And I'm not talking about right. someone's romantic life. I'm actually talking about, I don't wanna be in an environment that it feels toxic to me. You might handle it in your 20s or your 30s, maybe even your 40s. But in your 50s, your level of patience for it isn't, isn't the same. And you know, one person's toxicity may be a per, another person's beautiful environment. So I'm not saying all environment, you know. Right, but there's a freedom and uh, like kind of a liberation and a strength in that. Yeah. If you're looking at it correctly. Yeah, I think it's, you know, uh, this uh, the self-awareness that comes to like, I know where I flourish. I know what I like. And that's the editing function. We but also, to, also, sorry to interrupt, no, but okay. um, making sure that that, is coming from a higher consciousness state rather than an outgrowth of your fixed mindset at that time about yes. your capabilities. Yeah, it's the, it's having that openness again to the intuition, to the wisdom, to something that actually may emerge that is not scripted for you. Um, and um, and that's actually frankly why in the great resignation in, in the pandemic, we've seen an enormous explosion in people 45 and older going out and starting their own business. Yeah. It's and huge. a lot of young people not going back to the job. And a lot of young people not going back to the job. And, and confusion, that's, like what? Like people are confused that that's- occurring. That's right. Yeah. But what I find interesting on the 45 year olds and up is we, so we tend to think of it like all the entrepreneurs, like the hot entrepreneurs are under 30. 
But um, the fastest growing set of entrepreneurs in the country today are 45 and older. Is that right? Yeah, no, yeah, no. exactly. And so over 50% of the businesses, you know, the new businesses started in the US are people 50 and old, older, so. Mm. Yeah, I love that idea of attunement. Like in retrospect, reflecting back on my life, like so much of everything that I'm so blessed to be able to do now has been a process of trying to focus on attunement having that kind of crisis with what I was doing, you know, relatively early, like everybody thinks of 40 as like this pivotal kind of life crisis. And now it just feels cute. Like I'm 55, <laughs> like 40, you were so young. Um, and to kind of uh, inelegantly, but eventually fall into this um, vocation that I feel like meets my skill sets, allows me to continue to develop this growth mindset and is successful only to the extent to which I can be attuned with yeah. you. Like I can't achieve this conversation for it to be valuable or successful for the person who's listening to it. That is truly a function of the extent to which I can be prepared, but yet completely present and in the allowing. So the opposite of presence is absence. And um, we live in an absent culture partly because we have, all have an iPhone in our hand. and when you meet someone who has presence, um, whether it's a mentor, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a friend, whether it's a romantic partner, when they are present in the moment, you notice it. And this is a quality we get better at as we age. I mean, actually we're very present when we're young. So we're very present, you know, you see the, a child, you know, a two-year-old or a one-year-old sort of just looking at things and there's a presence there. And then we accumulate knowledge as we get older and you know, in our childhood and we have scripts that we're living and we're less present. And there's a point at which we become present again. I, have, I happen to think it's around when the operating system of the soul kicks in. Um, and when we start to become present again, things come through us. So I was most of my life, a can-do-it person, can-do-it. We had 3,500 employees at Joie de Vivre and I handed out 3,500 copies of the book, <laughs> The Little Engine That Could. Uh -huh. The little engine that could. Do you remember that the uh, childhood of story? Yes. So the childhood story of this little, little, tiny little, um, uh, not a caboose, but the, the, the train at the start of the, what would you call the, the first train? I don't know. Uh, the engine? The engine, yeah. thank you. That's yeah, the little engine that could. Thank yeah. you, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> I know this story, it's so imprinted into my childhood. So the yeah. little engine that could was, the, was sort of brought into duty to do something that was beyond what it thought it could do and bring all those animals, the, you know, the circus or zoo animals up uh, a uh, mountain. So the can-do-it attitude was very much in my brain. And it was like something I wanted all of my employees to have. And we saw that the, in, in terms of guest loyalty, a guest who felt that the employees had a can-do-it attitude, that was the number one correlation with whether the guest would be loyal. Can-do-it, can-do-it, can-do-it. I have moved from can-do-it to conduit. So can-do-it is attainment. Can-do-it is I can do it. Can do it is rugged individualism. It is the ego run riot. And it has wonderful qualities about it. But there's a point at which can do it, when it can shift to conduit, what happens is you're now the channel. You're the present one who's channeling something through you. And whether this, if Julie was here right now, she'd probably be, we'd get into a very deep yes. spiritual conversation about this. But 
the, it is your ability to be the channel, the conduit of things through you. And when you get to that state, there's a power that it, you that you're conducting that is so much greater than anything you can do in the conduit stage. Um, and all of this sounds very ethereal, but you know it when you see it and you feel it. Sort of like pornography. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Definition of pornography from the Supreme Court was, you know, you know it when you see it. Presence and someone's power as a conduit, you know it when you see it. And I guess I would just say that it's that level of energy. Someone said to me, you know, you've written a book, Chip, about wisdom at work and all these older people are gonna come to you and say, how can I get a job in my 50s or my 40s or my 60s? And this executive recruiter said something that was so beautiful and it relates to this. She said, you know, if you show up with curiosity and passionate engagement in your interview, whether it's in Zoom or in person, what people will notice is not your wrinkles, but they'll notice your energy. And when they notice your energy, they lose track of your age. And that is so true. I mean, I'm feeling it right now. As I'm speaking mm -hmm. to you, you're feeling it from me probably. Yeah, it's really powerful. It, it's, there's an energy. And when someone is, an energy is something that's coming through you. It's not just how much your weight you're lifting, um, but it could be. I mean, the conduit can come through you in all kinds of ways. But for me, it comes through me in this role as a teacher now, but also a learner. And you know, I I love being in an environment where I can look back and say I lost five friends to suicide between 2008 and 2010. I wish there had been a great a, a, a midlife wisdom school mm -hmm. and a place where they could have done a great midlife edit, um, such that they could still be on the planet. And that's what's coming through me. Mm. Yeah the conduit, there's something really beautiful about that, that also, you know, I've just noticed when I can inhabit that space to the extent that I'm capable, um, that that is so much more fulfilling yeah. than the, you know, striving and the accumulating. Yeah. To be this, you know, channel for somebody else's success or to be the connective tissue between two things that then become greater than the sum of their parts. Yeah, it's, um... There's a guy named Eric Erickson, a developmental psychologist, and he uh, said five words that just to me define this era of life. Um, he said, I am what survives me. And um, that really means a lot because it, it's, it's not, it, it suggests that we've moved to an era of your life where it, generativity is the key. And he also said, it, you know, it, in, in our midlife and later years, the challenges between generativity and stagnation. But generativity is, is different than attain, attainment. Generativity means you're, you're creatively generating things, but it's for other people. It often he meant it in the, ter in the term of generations for other mm -hmm. generations. Mm. So um, how do we co-generate? How do we create um, things that are gonna survive us, that are gonna support other people and help them be a better version of themselves and maybe a better version of me. I mean, through them. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that, you know, again, this is very much the, the mentorship language, but I think, you know, one of the things that people need to think about as they get older is the, their legacy and not the legacy, the ego legacy, 
uh, it's not so much how am I going to be remembered. Um, that's important, but but that has a certain ego attached. It's more, you know, how how will I have served? Mm-hmm. And when I when the shift can go to how have I served? There's something in it that speaks to what am I doing that's going to live beyond me that is going to have an influence way beyond me sitting here. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of lead into the last thing that I wanna talk to you about, which is for that person who is contemplating all of this right now, perhaps they're in their 40s or their 50s and they're thinking about what's next or if there is even going to be anything next and you know, maybe doesn't have that level of, of self-understanding or self-integration to really, you know, have the intuition to to you know follow you know wherever they're being led by their curiosity, like, and and perhaps they don't have the budget to go down to Baja and mm-hmm. and, and and participate in your academy. What are some things that they could be thinking about? Perhaps books they could be reading or ways of approaching that level of self inquiry that could help unlock some of those answers. Lots of great books out there. Um, Wisdom at Work. Wisdom at Work being yes. one of them. But um, The 100 Year Life is a really interesting book uh, written by two uh, UK um, academics it's talking about the medical world says that children being born today, there's a 50% chance they're gonna live to 100. Mm-hmm. So how would you curate your life differently if you knew you were gonna live till 100? So it's a great book. Um, there's, uh, gosh, what other books do I love? Um, let me just, let me, yeah. do, you know, when you when you mention that, something comes to mind, which is another tension, the tension between, yes, let's contemplate our lives at a hundred and how mm-hmm. we can plan for that. But how do you re- like sort of reconcile that with another powerful idea, which is what if you don't have, what if you only have three months or six months or a year to live? How would that change how you're approaching well, the way that you spend your time? Well, that's a very different question. So um, so Laura Carstensen, uh, I'm on her advisory board at the Stanford Center on Longevity. And she's done very conclusive research on this to show that the shorter period of time you have in your life, the more you take seriously the, each moment and makes sense. You know, and she looked at it with older people, but also people who had AIDS, um, people who had a cancer um, diagnosis that was incurable. And what they found was that, you know, when you have less time, you are more mindful in the moment. And that makes sense. You're less focused on the past, you're less focused on the future, you're more focused on the moment. And what comes from that is a certain level of life satisfaction and contentment. And so that is, I would just say for anybody who's looking at their life right now and saying, I don't feel very content, my response to them would be, how much are you spending time in the moment? Mm-hmm. How can you do that? Yes, you can meditate. Yes, you can do yoga. Go for a walk with your dog in nature. So during the pandemic, when I was living in Baja and we had no guests because you know we had to shut down, um, I would do, I'd put on my calendar three hours a day, three days a week. And I called it spying on the divine. <laughs> and I would go get divinely intoxicated in nature. And I don't mean I brought alcohol or, or psychedelics. No, I was going for a walk with my dog for three hours in different natural, beautiful places around Baja and just noticing what nature could teach me. The resilience of nature, the interdependence of nature. 
I was being in the moment. And um, our friend Dacher Keltner, who started the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and is on our faculty and has a book coming out on awe uh, next year, um, talks about the various forms of how you can find awe in your life. And for so many people, it's found in nature. So I'd say that is something you can do. You've got a park mm-hmm. near you. You've got, I mean, you don't have to spend any money on that. You don't even have to, you know, you don't have to buy a book for that. Um, but there's lots of other good books. There's you know, from Strength to Strength that just came out with Arthur Brooks. There's mm-hmm. Becca Levy's book, um, Breaking the Age Code. Um, Becca Levy is the one who actually, in many ways our program is built on her work from Yale. She was able to show that when you shift a person from a negative to a positive mindset on aging, you give them 7.5 additional years of life. What? Mm. It's actually more life than if someone stopped smoking at age 50 or if they uh, started exercising at age 50. So the public health benefit of shifting a mindset around aging has a greater benefit to society and people are happier. And yet we have PSAs left and right about how we should stop smoking and how we should start exercising. We have no PSAs around how to reframe aging. Mm -hmm. So there's her book, uh, Breaking the Age Code, um, which just came out uh, in the last month uh, is a great book. You could do MEA online. I mean, it's our purpose right. course starts in June, and and that is not very expensive, and it's an eight week course. And but um, there's lots of ways that for people to to actually ask themselves. My my blog, my daily blog, is free. Wisdom Well, um, it's really sort of the best of MEA curriculum. Um, get a micro dose of wisdom every morning. Yeah. And maybe adopt that uh, that inventory that weekly inventory journaling practice. Oh yes, the my wisdom right? book. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful man. Thank you. Um, really inspiring to talk to you. Yeah. I want to come down and visit. Yeah. You in Baja. Maybe we could we could co-lead a week. That would be great. Yeah. I would I would love that. I would yeah. love that. I I need I need more Chip Conley in my life. <laughs> If I, I get anything out of this, like, yes. Well, you're, you're, you're helpful <laughs> for me because, you know, I, it's funny, last quick thought. I, I'm not vegan, but I started a vegan restaurant. That's right. We didn't even talk about that. Like long, I had no idea that you were co-owner Millennium. of Millennium. Yeah, no, I like, started- what, That's the legendary, I thought I thought Robin Williams owned it at some point. No, 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 no. Robin Williams he used went to go to there a lot. He went, okay. went to a lot, Woody Harrelson went to a lot. A lot of people went there. Mm-hmm. By the way, have you seen the movie, the show Bad Vegan? Yes. Uh, that's a whole other podcast. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I used to go to that you know, pure, pure food all the time. I did too. Um, so long story short is you are a reminder for me because of your show and, and your presence about me taking care of my body. Mm, um, good. Because I have, I had prostate cancer and, you know, and I am- mm, That's right. And yeah. back in- How are you doing? Back, I'm, I've had, I had a surgery that I have, only have half a prostate now, but I'm, you know, my PSA is below one. Uh, and it was mm. ten point eight. Yeah, so life is life is a lot better. And yeah, you're that reminder of you know take care of myself. All right. Well, um, if I could be so audacious, I will consider this uh, the first installment in an ongoing conversation. Beautiful. I'd love to have you back. So thank, thank you, you, Chip. Thank Appreciate you, you. Peace. We did it. Yay! That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, 
voicing change in the plant power way, as well as the plant power meal planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.